As you can understand or see maybe or hear, I spent many years drinking from the age of 13 till I turned 27 when the Lord saved me. And nothing good comes from alcohol. Nothing good comes from that. And to think that opening up the bars for one day at 6 a.m. is going to help provide the resources to run this state. Man, Satan has blinded people. Unbelievable. And that's why it's so good to be in God's house. Amen? Amen? With God's people. Because again, when you look at the things of the world, it's so easy to get discouraged. That's why we need the, the fellowship of the saints. That's why we need to be in God's Word constantly. Last week we were looking at gambling against God. We looked at the prosperous way. We looked at Joshua chapter 1. And how God told Joshua that if you know His Word, talk about His Word, meditate upon His Word, and do His Word, you position yourself to be prosperous in all things. To succeed. And when we don't, we're gambling. We're taking the reins and thinking we know better. And today I want to look at is here that God is able. In fact, if you take your hymnal, uh, turn to 527, one of the uh, hymns we just sang. I like how Ken really takes the message titles in the context of the, of the sermon and, and tries to fit the music. He says, "In I know whom I have believed. And in the refrain, which when I see refrain, that means stop singing, right? Refrain. <laughs> you know? It says, But I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that He is... Okay, we can all say that word. He is... Do we believe that? We sing about it. We read about it. But do we live it out in our lives? And that's where I want to encourage us because when we do not believe that God is able, we are gambling with us again taking control. Because when we don't believe that God is able, we're saying who's able? Self. And that's a dangerous place to be. That's a dangerous place to be. This morning I really want to look at the heart that's needed to do God's Word. I want to look at it because I believe that most of us know what we're supposed to do. We just struggle with the heart and motivation to do it. And I believe that's where many of us walk. We've got the head knowledge. And I really even believe we even have the heart to want to. But like that father in Matthew, in Mark 9.24, I believe but help my unbelief. We struggle with truly, truly trusting God. And so in the portion that Pastor Brian read for us, the Apostle Paul is writing back to the church in Corinth and trying to encourage the brethren for something that they've already started. Paul recounts the activity between the believers. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, just stop there for a second. Again, you do not have to be dead for 300 plus years and then somehow do some marvelous sign that somebody can say, hey, that person was a saint. 
Let's make a stained glass window after him. Let's sell a, a, a little charm so we can make more money. No, a saint is anybody who puts their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's it. Now, sometimes we don't feel too saintly. And sometimes we don't act too saintly. But that's where the grace of God comes in again, isn't it? Amen? So his, now concerning the ministering to the saints is superfluous or it's, you know, I really don't need to be writing to you again. For I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Now Paul is talking about the believers meeting the needs of other believers through financial means. That's what he's talking about. That is a prerequisite. That is our duty as believers, as children of God, as saints, is to meet the needs of other believers through financial means. The reason why our country has such a big welfare problem is because the church of Jesus Christ lost that years ago. It, is never, it should never be the duty of government to take care of people. It should be the duty of God's people. The poor you'll have with you always. Guess what? Take care of them. That's what God wants for us. Instead, what we do is, no, let's keep more for ourselves and expect the government to do it. And then when government keeps taxing us, and then we keep saying, well, all the taxes. Well, one way or the other. Which way is it going to be? Are we going to minister to the needs of people? Are we going to get involved in their lives? Or are we just going to pay out our taxes and expect government to do it? That's, I mean, in that mindset flows into the church big time I mean it starts even when we're kids especially when you start getting to junior high high school some of you teachers understand this there's the the animosity between the students and the teachers it's us against them <laughs> right you know and our teachers are stupid they don't know anything right and and then we oh, they're a bad teacher and the list goes on and there's so many wonderful, and I praise the Lord for the teachers in our assembly. Thank you so much for your sacrifice, because I know it is a sacrifice. I know it's not easy. Especially teachers today, not only do you have subjects to teach, but you've got to be social workers. You've got to be their parents. The list goes on that people are expecting you to do. And then we get into the workplace, and it's the employee against the employer. We fight about that, don't we? Why do we have so many unions? <laughs> right? I mean, uh, believe me, I understand it. I worked for many years. I worked for 21 years before I went to Bible school. I've been there. I know. And, and then we, we still have this whole thing now. And then it's the people against the government. And then we get into the church and then it's the people against the pastor or the deacons or the list goes on. Why? Because we're fickle people. We struggle with authority or the lack thereof. Now there's times to be upset with things like that and as I was mentioned, it's sad to see where our country is heading. But our fight is not with flesh and blood, it's with principalities, isn't it? Of the air. We are to be on our knees praying because the only way that is going to change is when we're on our knees praying and enable God to work in and through our lives. We don't always have to pray that God changes everybody else. Do we ever ch pray that God changed me? 
It's me, oh me, oh God, who's standing in the need of prayer. It's me that it's me that needs the heart attitude change. It's me that needs that attitude adjustment. I can look at everybody else and say how bad and wicked they are. But you know what? They don't know Christ. And is my heart so turned against them that I'm not willing to share Christ with them? Yes. How do I know that? Because we don't do it. Here, Paul is saying, listen, the saints were so concerned about the needs of the brethren in in Jerusalem that they were they had a great willingness you see that there was an eagerness or a willingness to want to help out and i praise the lord for this body this body is a very giving body and there's so many of you who want to meet the needs of other people and i praise god for that do not lose that but we need to develop that perseverance in our eagerness or our willingness because sort of just like right now, it's very exciting to see the first week that we established the building fund for the renovations, $2,600 came in. And that's a big amen to God, right? It's very exciting to see that. I mean, look at the sanctuary. Aren't we praising God for how He has supplied this need and for all the work that went on here and those who ministered? It's very easy to get excited about these new works. But sometimes it's in the middle we kind of wane a little. How long is this going to go on? You know, we drag. But then when we have the culmination, we're excited again. Sometimes we need that refreshing of the Spirit of God because, again, sometimes just the day-to-day kind of takes us down, doesn't it? And here Paul is writing to the churches here and saying, look, you, you started something a year ago and I'm sending some brethren to fulfill that which you've already promised. I want to encourage you not to grow tired, not to grow weary in doing good, to fulfill that which you have promised. Many of us have made so many promises to God that we can forget them all, don't we? How many promises? Now, think about this. How many of you just a few weeks ago took that little colored glass, stone, whatever? You came forward. You remember why you came forward. What God had spoke to your heart about and why you needed to come to this altar. That rock, as Joshua said, is a witness either for you or against you. But you know what? What's more than that is that little piece of glass, rock, whatever. What's more important, God knows what you said in your heart towards Him. It's a fact He even tells us in His Word, you don't even have to make contracts per se. He says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. If we said, God, I accept you as my Lord and Savior, I am going to follow you all my life, that should be it. That should be it. But again, we struggle. And so every now and then we need to be reminded of those things that we've promised to God. Why do we come every week to church? Do we come to really hear from God and be challenged by God's Word and to be conform more into the image of the Son or as well, no, that's what you've got to do now that you accept Christ. No. God wants us to be constantly being conformed into the image of His Son and He wants to use His Word to challenge us, not to stay stagnant, not to stay the same old, but to grow and to fulfill that which He has called us to. And look what He says here. The preparation is foundation 
for the readiness to, to give here. There's a readiness. I know your willingness about, which I boast about, that Achaia was ready a year ago. There is that preparation. You've got to be prepared to do what God has called you to do. Prepared to what you promised to do. We've got to be ready. Back in Massachusetts where Paul and I were raised, back in the 1700s, there was a group of militia called the Minutemen. Why? Because they could be ready in a minute. If there was a need for them to come to arms, they could be ready in a minute. There's many in the church of Jesus Christ who are ill-prepared and not ready to fight the good fight of faith. We need to be ready. Always be ready to give the reason for the hope that lies within us. Always. And God wants us to be ready. And there's also there's those who feel bad that they can't give to the work. Where did these come from? Somebody might be crying by the end of the service, but it's not going to be me. <laughs> Listen, there's so many, I, I hear this time and time again, that want to give to the work of the Lord, but they're unable because they have stretched themselves financially in so many other areas in things they've overcommitted themselves that they cannot give to the work of the Lord. They're not ready. They can't. Their priorities were elsewhere. And if that's you today, well, I just want to challenge you. Bring that before God. Get on your knees and ask God for forgiveness. And ask God to give you control of those finances that you can use them wisely for His glory. He'll give you help. Seek help. Humble yourself. There's Scott. I'm looking at Scott right over there. Talk to Scott. He's a financial guy. There's Tom in the back. Talk to Tom and Karen. They will help you with your finances and help give you a plan to get back on track. God wants you to have control over that so you can be ready to give as God desires. There's a willingness. There has to be a readiness. And in verses 3 through 5, he talks about the accountability that we need. Yet I have sent the brethren lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect that, as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Paul is telling us in this passage that accountability prevents us from being hollow or empty, just saying what we think others want to hear. Accountability is meant to encourage regular growth and preparation for giving. We need that accountability. We need others to, hey, how are you doing in this? Are you staying at task? Are you staying with what you've promised? Are you preparing what you've, what you've promised to do? What can I do to help? It's not just asking the question, is, are you doing it? It's being involved in people's lives too. Is How can I help you? It's not all just about giving of finances either, is it? I remember a few years ago, somebody came to me 
who was serving on a, a on a, a board and committee and uh, was complaining that people were not faithful or committed to showing up at the board meetings or doing certain things. And I said, well, wait a minute. You're the chairperson, right? I said, yeah. Okay, we had the annual meeting in May. So here it is, September. We've got May, June, July, August, September. Five months, right? How many meetings have you called? Oh, one. Were you elected chairperson? Who's not, co- who's not committed? The board or you? Because you haven't called the meetings. It's easy to sit back. Nobody's showing up. So the commitment is not only in giving of our finances, but it's also in giving of our time and our talents and our abilities. God has blessed us with gifts and talents and abilities to be used for His glory. And when we have committed ourselves to that task, we need to follow through. We need to follow through. And so here, Paul is saying, listen, not only do I not want to be ashamed or embarrassed because I've been boasting of you, telling everybody about your, your heart and your willingness and your, you just are so eager about giving. He says, I don't want to be embarrassed about that and I don't want you to be embarrassed. So I want to send these people ahead of time to encourage this, that you can follow through. That's the heart of a good shepherd, isn't it? It's not so much Paul. Listen, if we talk about somebody doing something and they don't do it, yeah, we could be embarrassed, but who should really be embarrassed, he's saying? You should, because you promised this. If you don't follow through, it's really on you, not on me. But I don't want you to be embarrassed. I don't want you to be uh, ashamed. I want you to be exalted, in a sense. I want you to get the credit for what you following through with what you've already promised a year ago. I want you to have a good reputation in front of all people. Because see, what Paul is saying is, look, at he understands the heart of man. See what he says there at the end, here in verse 5? If sometimes we're not held accountable and kind of encouraged to do what we're supposed to do, at the end, when push comes to shove, we do it begrudgingly. I'll give it because I made the promise, but I really don't want to do it and I'm being held accountable and okay, if that's what I've got to do, I'll do it. Where's the joy in that? Where's the heart in that? No, he's saying, listen, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. I think so many times we even come to church with the heart of a grudging obligation. Well, I'm a Christian. Yes, I did join the church. I've got to show up. And there's sometimes we come to church and we don't want to be here. Paula encourages me all the time. Kidding. Boy. But listen, there's times that... Let's be honest, okay? There are the times you just wake up and you don't want to be there. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to hit the snooze button again? Some of you feel that way. I understand that at times. But when we withhold our fellowship, first and foremost from God, and then from one another, 
we miss out on the wonderful blessings that God has in store for us. We miss out on just the joy. You know, it just I love sitting in my office before Sunday school or right after Sunday school and hearing everybody milling around. I love hearing the laughter and, and people talking with one another. I love when I come into the sanctuary and there's that, that joy of being together. Why? Because there's a lot of times we just can't be with each other during the week. So we look for opportunities to come together and be with each other. There should be joy in the fellowship of the, of the saints. Amen? And, and, and so sometimes what we need to do is, look, let's encourage each other on. Let's encourage each other to go to the house of the Lord. Let's say, hey, I'll pick you up if that's what's needed. Let's be together. Because, again, that's part of our giving. Ourselves. When you are not here, you are missed. You are missed. It doesn't matter what position or if you hold no position. You are missed if you are not here. Because God loves you. And God's got a plan and a purpose for your life. He wants to do amazing things in your life and through your life. Will you let Him? We've got to be there. And Paul doesn't want us to be empty. He wants us to have a, a joyful walk with the Lord. And then look at verses 6 through 7. He's going to go on about this generosity. He says I, he wants it to be a, a matter of generosity and not of grudging obligation. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Giving just like scattering seed always involves risk, doesn't it? The people of this time were very familiar with agricultural uh, economy. Planting and weeding and harvesting were common. But you know, there was risk. If I sow bountifully or generously, will it all take root? Will the birds come and eat it? Will the ground be prepared? There's always risk, isn't there? Is, I mean, some of you who have, who have gardens every year, there's sometimes, well, why did this grow last year, but it doesn't seem to want to grow this year? You know, or, or you know, that's why in Israel they would even have the year of Jubilee, that they'd even give the ground a rest. You know, and that they would take time for the ground to be uh, prepared again. And sometimes they would have to switch crops. You can't keep growing the same crop in the same plot of ground because it zaps all that nutrient from that. So they would plant it in a different side of the field. There's all these things that you have to do to be prepared. But they understood this agricultural uh, concept. But they also had to understand that it's necessity that you've got to get out and do the work. You've got to take the risk. You've got to sow those seeds. Because plain and simple, if you don't sow the seeds, you're not going to have a harvest. Just basic basic understanding of how things work. When I was, last time I taught over in Ukraine in 2005, I was supposed to have a bigger class, but they had a, a, a very wet spring. And so it was finally starting to dry up, and the majority of the men had to go out and plant their fields. Because literally over there, if you did not plant, you did not eat, you would not survive. So they had to go and plant their fields. They understood, if I don't do this, my family could suffer tremendously. And you know what? The same thing is applied to our spiritual giving as well. 
If we do not give, do not expect a good harvest. And the way that we give has a profound impact on the lives of the family of God and the lives of the lost as well. Our giving has a positive and a negative impact or the lack of giving. A farmer who refused to risk his grain will lose on the harvest. The best way to increase the sum is to subtract from it. Think about this. You have to take what God has blessed you with and you have to give it. Give it to God. It's been God's anyways, right? Not the 10%. I don't know where people still think that 10% is what God requires. Because God owns it all. But we have to give it to God in order for God to use it and to bless it and to multiply it. A lad with a couple of fish and some loaves fed over 5,000 people. How does that happen? Can anybody explain that? You're on a limited budget, but you know you need to give to God first. And you do that. And consistently you have enough for the month. How does that happen? Can anybody explain that? You trust God with just this little, but He increases it so much more. Can anybody explain that? The only way to explain it is a God thing. But we'll miss out on those God times and those God experiences and the God-sized blessings if we don't give and trust God in it. He says we have to give. Giving is a choice. And choices have consequences. We must first choose to give. We must then choose what to give and then how to give. Look what he says here, starting in verse 6. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. You have to decide, am I going to give? Am I going to give? What will I give? How much will I give? In what manner? You need to purpose in your heart. It needs to be something that you think about, something that you pray about. Something that doesn't just, well, what do I have in my pocket? Is what would God have me to do? We need to pray about our giving more regularly. I I bet most couples don't even talk about what they actually give. It just happens, right? Do we sit and pray about that? Do we discern what God would have us to do? Do we seek the Lord in it? And then what Paul says is, look, this wonderful biblical principle which has natural and spiritual ramifications is if you purpose in your heart to only give a little, then remember, you're only going to get a little. That's all there is to it. Why do we think if I get a do- give a dollar, I am going to be so blessed beyond measure? Unless that dollar is all you have. 
Because the Lord even points out the widow and her two mites. She gave above all those who gave out of their wealth. Because she gave out of her poverty. She was truly sacrificing. Now I know for some of you here, a dollar would mean so much. And others, a hundred dollars means absolutely nothing. It's what you purpose in your heart is going to be the outcome of what's going to be the harvest. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. God measures the giver far beyond the gift. And God loves the attitude of our giving more than the gift itself. Look at not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a what? God loves a cheerful giver. Think about when the offering plate went by. Do you think about what as it goes by and you put whatever in it? Do you take joy that I can write that check or I can give that envelope or whatever, I can give that money? Do you ever think about, I am just so pleased I can put that in the plate? Or do you just, it, no thought to it whatsoever. It's just what we do. It's Christian aerobics. Oh, stand up for this song, sit down for that song, stand up, sit down, pass the plate, next, right? I mean, that's what we do. Do we ever think about that area of worship? Because, you know, our giving of tithes and offerings is part of our worship to God. That's part of our worship, our reasonable worship, our spiritual worship. Giving is a spiritual issue with God because it reflects what's in the heart. Do we really look at that and say, I am so glad that I can give that. And you know, maybe we should even in our hearts, I wish I could give so much more. God knows that. God knows that. God loves a cheerful giver. He loves to see what we can give because it reflects what's in our heart is what reflects our love towards God. Again, is it just, oh, if I only give money, then God loves me? Of course not. But it just shows our total dependence and our love for Him, that He is able, that He will meet all our needs, that I love Him so much, I trust Him so wholeheartedly, that I can just totally give. And first and foremost, as I did a while ago, I won't do it today, but remember I stood in the offering plate? God wants you first and foremost. He doesn't want your money. That's not what it is. But see, God understands that many times money is our God. And we need to give that over. Many in the world think money is power and security and influence. And to to the world it is. But to the believer... One day, we're going to be walking on streets of gold. Money is a tool. It shouldn't be our idol and our goal. Money should be a tool to accomplish God's purposes. A wanna material. Detour program. Sunday school material. All those are tools to accomplish God's purposes, Right? And the money is the tool to make sure we have those materials. Money is the the tool to make sure the missionary is still on the field. 
Money is still the tool to make sure the heat is on in this building so that we can gather together and worship God corporately. Money is just a tool to be used in God's hands. It should never be an idol in our lives. And so here he says, if you sow uh, sparingly, you only going to reap sparingly. But sow bountifully, you reap. Let's give with a joyful heart, not grudgingly out of necessity. But look what he says, the provision here. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Man, there's a word in that one little passage that I like a lot. <laughs> and is repeated over and over again. And we miss out on so much that God has for us. God is able to make to meet all our needs. Literally, what the verse says is, able is God. Able is God. He is able to do everything that we could even ask or think. Beyond it, far beyond. There's nothing that can hinder God from meeting our needs except for our own actions or lack thereof and our selfish desires. God responds to our needs in every area and God is able to meet them. God supplies the treasure to give and the resources to live. Do you believe that? God supplies the treasures to give and the resources to live. Listen, the job that you have, who gave that to you? God. The paycheck that you receive each week, who enables you to get that? God. Who's supplying the treasure? God. Who knows what you need to eat and to live and all these things? God. He makes it all possible. He gives us everything that we have and He even gives us what we need to give to back to Him to say, I trust you, I'll honor you with my life and all that I have and all that I am and all that I hope to be. God, it's yours. Yeah. And look what He says here in this verse. Not only does He supply this but he wants us to have an abundance for every good work not just squeak out what we need to get the job done he wants us to have an abundance for the job that he's called us to the work that he has ordained for us to walk in he wants us to be abundantly supplied for that there's nothing worse when you're doing a construction job and you don't have the materials to get the job done that, that's so frustrating. Even more frustrating if you don't have the money to get more supplies. But see, that's not what God's saying here, is it? When we trust Him and walk by faith, know His Word, talk about His Word, meditate on His Word, and do His Word, we are going to have the abundance for every good work. Why? Because it brings honor and glory to His name. He doesn't want a God that we don't want a God that well will not meet our needs and only gets us part way. Wouldn't it be something if you go to glory and your feet are hanging out of the clouds? You know, because God can't save all of you. No, He saves us to the what? The uttermost. Every little molecule of us is going to glory. Amen. Can't wait for that day. God supplies what we're to give. 
With the few minutes we have left, turn over, if you would, to Genesis chapter 4. I just want to show you something here. In Genesis chapter 4, real quick hint, go to the front of the Bible and turn into chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit uh, from the ground of the ground to the Lord, and Abel also brought uh, the firstborn uh, of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, "Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you." but you should rule over it. You see what God is saying here? God is not only expecting an offering, but He's expecting an acceptable offering. And notice He didn't say, I'm expecting a tithe. He says, I'm expecting an offering. It's something that you purpose in your heart to give back to God. He's expecting that. And the wonderful thing is, we're not told this here, but God must have somehow communicated to Adam and Eve and, and to Cain and Abel what is an acceptable offering. Cain, you knew what you're supposed to do. And if you do it, you'll be accepted. I believe there's many offerings that we bring to the church that God does not accept. Because we're not doing it with the right heart or right motivation. I really believe that. Because, I mean, even look at not only this, but the widows and two mites. God said not wasn't pleased by the rich people who were just throwing in money because they didn't give it out of a sincerity of heart and wanted to really please God. They were doing it to be seen and to be heard and to boast upon their... No. He's looking at the heart. Here too. Cain, your heart's not right. Your heart's not right. Because if your heart was right, your heart would do what I expect. If our hearts are right, we will do what God expects. An acceptable offering. Now I believe also, as people are growing and trusting in the Lord, and some are struggling with how much to give God because they're looking at the bills and they know what they make, and for some it's even a stretch to give what they are given, I think God is saying, I love that. I am so pleased by that. But I'm going to work with you more and I'm going to make sure that you give out of a pure heart and learn to trust me more and more. You've taken this step of faith. You're, 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 you're trusting me. But I want you to total abandonment. I want you to jump out and trust me. I don't want you to just take the baby steps. I want you to really put your whole life in my hands and let me trust and you trust in me and watch what I can do. But he takes us through the baby steps, doesn't he? 
And again, I believe that God expects more out of us for the reason that God has given us better. God expects us to do better because He's given us better. It's many times that we don't trust God because, again, we, like Peter, as Pastor Brian preached on a few weeks ago, we look at the waves, we look at the storm around us, and we think about our abilities of how we can control the situation, and we can't, and we get swamped and overwhelmed. And so what we do is we huddle down. We try to take control. And the more and more that we try to take control, the more and more our life becomes chaotic, and things don't seem to be working. And we are in despair, and I wonder why God just doesn't love me. No, it's not that God doesn't love you. It's just that you're not doing it God's way. God wants to bless you. God wants to pour out the abundance of His love upon you so that you will be abundantly equipped for every good work. But the only way that can happen is when we do it God's way. It's when we do it God's way. And until we're willing, we will reap sparingly. I really believe, I, I praise the Lord for this, for this congregation. I really do. I love this body of Christ. I really do. And I know some of you are giving, I mean sacrificially giving. You know, I, did, again, did you notice in, in Genesis chapter 4 it's an offering? In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it says, talking about their offering. Hmm. not a tithe if we want to go back to the sacrificial system of, of Israel you're going to be giving anywhere between 23 and 33 percent so everybody want that boy nobody's hand went up <laughs> again we're not trying to be legalistic here I'm not trying to say I want your money I need your money no listen God is saying I want your heart I want your heart I want you to trust me. My math, as I did a series a while ago, my math does not always add up 1 plus 1 equals 2. Many times, 1 plus 1 equals so much more in God's economy. But it's taken that step to trust God with what you got. Because, guess, listen, what you have right now is what God has given you. You want to see God increase? Then give what He's already given you. Trust Him in it. And watch. Doesn't God say in Malachi, test me. Bring the tithe into my storehouse and see if I don't open up the windows of heaven and pour out my blessings upon you. I believe God has so many more blessings for us individually and corporately. But we need to step out by faith. I don't know where you are with your finances and that's not my my business I don't know what anybody here gives except for Paula and I it's none of my business but I do know by our own experience God is able beyond what we ever can ask or think if we want to experience the abundance of God's grace 
Again, I'm not saying God is going to pour out this uber amount of, I like that word, uber, uber amount of material blessings. But one of the things he wants to give each and every one of his children is his peace and his joy, which is totally priceless. Because when we're walking in obedience with God, the peace and the joy that comes from God, nobody can describe it. Let's pray. Lord,